Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, episode 57, Our House. Today I'm interviewing Steve Atkerson from the New Testament Reformation Fellowship on house churches and New Testament patterns of church practice. Before we get into the interview, though, I did want to uh, make one attempt at a monologue since last time I gave up after so many butchered attempts. Um, And because I need to practice speaking without a script in front of me, uh, I'm going to just go with a bulleted bulleted list of topics that I wanted to talk about briefly. And the first one that I want to mention was was some encouragement that I received from Jim Wallace of the Please Convince Me podcast. Uh, We had gone back and forth over email a few times after uh, an interview that I did with Edward Fudge um, that you'll recall from several weeks ago on annihilationism. Um, And in the email, I mentioned that I had gotten some uh, negative emails from some of my fellow apologists and theologians <laughs> um, for uh, that were criticizing the fact that I was considering uh, conditionalism or annihilationism. And, uh, you know, Jim Wallace called me. He has my phone number and he called me and he, he encouraged me and told me that it's a good thing that I'm not simply taking traditions and doctrines for granted, but, uh, but I'm testing them, uh, testing them in light of scripture and, and having guests on uh, to talk about those issues. Um, I, I hope that you find them valuable. Um, somebody that listens to the show sent me a link where he was promoting my podcast. And one of the things that he said was that I use my podcast to examine my own faith, and, and that is true, and I hope that you're enjoying um, and, and finding useful this the journey that I'm going through, um, because I don't want to just simply accept what I've been taught without critically examining them, and so I hope that you find them useful, the interviews that I'm doing, um, even though you may ultimately disagree with the people that I've had on. But one thing that Jim Wallace did point out, and, and I, I think this is important, he, he pointed out that I really should be having... Um, uh, proponents of the other side of the of the argument on right about the same time not not literally in the same episode but I shouldn't be putting out episode after episode of uh, on physicalism and annihilationism and never and and waiting forever to have somebody on from the other side of the argument um, in fact he recommended that in the future uh, when I have when I do topics like this I do I record with one of the guests but then I don't publish it until I've secured the interview with the other one. Um, and that would have been wise. I really should have done that because I think that I might be giving the people the impression that I'm promoting physicalism and conditionalism, which I'm not. What I'm promoting is examining them and testing them and not simply dismissing them as, uh, uh, as wrong without seriously taking, uh, without taking seriously their argument. Um, and with that in mind, I wanted to let you know that I've been making attempts to get guests on to discuss the traditional view of hell. Um, you know, I reached out to Robert Peterson and Chris Morgan, who are two giants in this particular area of theology. Uh, both of them declined, presumably because they are swamped right now. Um, I, I did get, uh, um, I, w- I was, my invitation was accepted by Larry Dixon. Uh, Larry Dixon is um, somebody who's written a book called The Other Side of the Good News, in which he critiques a few different uh, alternatives of the traditional hell, one of which is annihilationism. And he accepted my invitation, and so on the 26th of this month, uh, I'll be interviewing him as to uh, why the traditional view of an eternal conscious hell is the biblical view uh, and why annihilationism is not. However, Larry Dixon isn't reformed. Um, he, He 
calls himself a three three and a half to four point Calvinist, um, which is fine. I'm not going to criti- criticize him for that. Um, but I do want a a truly reformed guest on as well because I think that somebody who's a reformed or, or, or a Calvinist is going to come at the question of hell with a little bit of a different perspective. And so while I have secured the interview with Larry Dixon, um, I hope to get a reformed guest on uh, who will you know promote and defend the traditional view of hell. If you could think of anybody, let me know. I'm, I'm still reaching out to people hoping to find somebody, um, but your recommendations are, are definitely very welcome. I'm also trying to get some duelists on the show uh, to balance out the interviews that I've done with Glenn Peoples and Joel Green. Um, both of those two guests have come on the show to promote physicalism as an understanding of the nature of humanity or, or philosophy of mind. Uh, Scott Smith from Biola University has agreed to come on the show sometime in October to uh, promote dualism um, and, and to defend it. Uh, Scott Smith has written at length about the emergence of physicalism within the Christian community, uh, and he specifically critiqued Joel Green uh, and some of what Joel Green has taught. And so I thought that he would be a perfect guest to have on the show, and, and I'm looking forward to that. But I am, but I am also looking for a second duelist who can come on the show to um, to promote and defend the uh, dualistic understanding of the nature of man. And if you can think of anybody that you'd like to hear, please email me and let me know. I've reached out to a few of them and haven't gotten any responses. And so for the time being, Scott Smith is the only duelist that I've got lined up. Um, So please email me with any suggestions that you have, uh, and I'll reach out to those folks as well. The last announcement that I have before we play today's promo and move into the interview is that in the not-too-distant future, I'm going to have the pleasure to treat you to another debate, the second debate that I'll have moderated on my show, this time on the topic of evangelical universalism. Uh, The debate resolution will be something like four or five passages, specific passages, uh, teach that some people will never be saved from their sins. Jason Pratt from EvangelicalUniversalist.com will be denying that resolution because he doesn't think that the scripture teaches that some people will never be saved from their sins. He thinks that all people will. Uh, And I reached out to some people to try to find somebody to debate Jason, and the person who accepted was Turretin Fan. Turretin Fan, you'll be familiar with him if you listen to James White's The Dividing Line and are familiar with Alpha and Omega Ministries. Um, Turretin Fan will be affirming that proposition, arguing that, in fact, these particular passages do teach that some people will never be saved from their sins. We're working those debate arrangements out right now, um, things like structure and, and date, stuff like that. Um, so hopefully you won't have to wait very long for that, Lord willing. Uh, I think it'll be a fascinating discussion, and I very much look forward to it, uh, having strong feelings about universalism like I do. Anyway, those were all the announcements I had. I, I've stumbled through them as smoothly as I could. I apologize for the uh, stutters and ums and stuff like that. Uh, but let's go ahead and play today's promo. The next promo in my rotation is for Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. You're unbelievable. Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks, but where can you hear the arguments of your favorite defenders of faith actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate? Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative if we can't agree on what the text was? Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no 
evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God. Do you mean God when you say agency? God, is a, God I mean God. Is a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness, and life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to Cutting Edge Apologetics Debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's Unbelievable, the show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. I really couldn't say enough about Justin Brierley and the Unbelievable radio program. It's the first podcast that I listen to when a new episode is available Saturday mornings. Uh, I hear people talk about it in their shows. I, I... read people blog about it. There really is nothing out there like it. Um, I I would highly recommend checking it out. You're going to grow. You're going to be challenged. Your interest is going to be piqued in a lot of different topics that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Um, It really is an amazing show. And if you didn't catch the link to it that that Justin Brierley just gave in the the promo, there'll be a link to it in my show notes that you can check it out. Really, seriously, if there's not, if if there's any podcast that you're going to listen to uh, about Christian theology and apologetics and stuff like that, you need to check this one out. Well, in any case, uh, with that, let's move into today's interview. Today I'm joined by Stephen Atkerson, president and co-founder of the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, to talk with me about house churches and New Testament patterns for church practice. Thanks for joining me today, Steve. It's an honor to be here, Chris. I want to start by getting to know a little bit about you. You haven't always been a part of or an advocate of house churches, have you? I mean, can you tell us about your experiences in typical modern churches before you became involved in this movement? Well, I grew up attending United Methodist churches. I was born again while I was in high school. And then when I was in college, I was uh, baptized at First Baptist Church of Atlanta, which at that time had 7,000 members. I was very active there during my college years and afterwards. Uh, later, I moved to Alabama, Birmingham, where I was uh, a member of First Baptist Church there and directed their college department, a very traditional First Baptist-type church. And then when I was in seminary in Memphis, Tennessee, I, I was a member of uh, Bellevue Baptist, which at that time had 14,000 members, and wow. I eventually became uh, what they call a workship program. It's kind of like their part-time staff. They uh, let certain seminary students uh, earn money and also serve the church, in, in a, so I call it a part-time staff. So during my time in seminary, I was on the part-time staff there at that church. So I've been in, involved with some pretty big churches, and then uh, after seminary, Chris, I became a Southern Baptist pastor at a church that had a thousand members here in Atlanta. I was on the, the staff there as associate pastor and I was at that church for seven years. And so, and I've gone from the largest of churches down to the smallest. And well, well, that's a good point because at your, at the bio at your uh, website, it says that you've transitioned all the way from mega churches to micro churches. What is it that changed? How is it that you, uh, that you came to desire to move from mega churches to micro churches? Well, I jokingly tell people I studied myself out of a job. (laughs) I went to a lot of, during seminary and afterwards, I went to a lot of weekend seminars by 
guys that were into church renewal, and they were always challenging you to rethink the way you did church uh, from the traditional paradigm we've had since the time of the Reformation over to something that might be more relevant to people and you might more effective be more effective in reaching people with the gospel. So I started thinking along those lines, and the church I was in here in Atlanta was had for years been at best neo-Orthodox, and by some fluke of God's sovereignty, they got several of us in there who were very much Bible-believing, and that wasn't well-received by a lot of the rank and file there. Hmm. And so... We were trying to grow the church, but at the same time had a lot of internal opposition from a lot of longtime members. And so we tried all the church growth, uh, well, I hate to say gimmicks, but all the, the latest church growth fads that right. were coming down the pipe. And in our situation, for various reasons, they just didn't work. And it kept driving me personally back to the scriptures, thinking, well, maybe there's some important biblical principle that we have missed here. And so in the process of doing that, I, I guess I'd counted a blessing it didn't work, because if it had worked, I guess I would have quit looking. But since <laughs> nothing we did worked, it kept driving me back to the scriptures. Well, how did how did the early Christians do church? And maybe we're missing some vital thing. So I began to see that the way they did church was far different than what we were doing in our traditional church. And that intrigued me. And the more I researched it, the more I found out that um, that that looked like a pretty good way to do church, and I wanted to be able to do church that way. And then I started meeting other people that actually were doing church very much more in a New Testament way than than we were as a church. So that's what started making me curious about it, Chris. It's just the difference between the way the early church did things and the way we were doing things. And I wanted to experience the New Testament way of doing it, and our church was, they just weren't much interested in that. And although I had the freedom to teach on it and advocate it, the Mm. the main body just didn't want to have anything to do with anything but a traditional way of doing church. And so when I saw that there wasn't really much hope of change in my lifetime, at least, I felt like for integrity's sake I should resign so that well, first, I was representing a way of doing church I didn't really think was the best way to do church, and I didn't think it was likely to change where I was. And two, I wanted to have the freedom to actually be involved with churches that did want to do it more the New Testament way. So that's why I say I studied myself out of a job. I wasn't <laughs> mad at them, and they weren't mad at me, but it was just one of those things where for conscience sake I, and also for, I thought, the potential advance of the gospel, I wanted to uh, work with churches that were more keen on doing it a little bit closer to the New Testament practice. Sure, I understand. Well, as I mentioned when I introduced you, you're the president and co-founder of something called the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. What's the story behind NTRF? How did it begin and what is its mission? We started a mission church in Chattanooga, our traditional Southern Baptist church did, and those guys had already largely bought into the idea of doing it more of a New Testament way. And I went up a lot to help them in what they were doing as a representative from our traditional church down in Atlanta. And so they're the ones that sold me on how what a blessing it could be to do church more of a New Testament way. Hmm. And so along with some of those guys, we started NTRF, New Testament meaning we had an emphasis on the New Testament way of doing church, Reformation meaning, well, there's sort of a Reformation, not of doctrine, 
but of practice. So we're not uh, upsetting orthodoxy, but we are questioning orthopraxy. Hmm. And then it's a fellowship because it's NTRF is a fellowship of brothers who, uh, many of whom are former traditional pastors who are now doing church more along New Testament lines. So NTRF really is a teaching fellowship to help promote uh, New Testament church practice. So we are trying to reform today's church with New Testament church practice. Okay. Now, you're going to be sharing with us today some information that might challenge me and my listeners and, and hopefully will at least get us thinking about the way that we do church. But, but I really want to make sure that your message isn't misunderstood. So what is it, what is it you're saying about the kinds of churches that most of us are familiar with? Are they in sin? Are they not true church, uh, not true churches? Anything like that? We would not say they are not true churches and we wouldn't even necessarily say they're in sin. It's a little bit, like the difference between churches that hold to believers' baptism versus infant baptism. Hmm. Well, presumably somebody is in error there. And and that doesn't mean the other group is in sin because very uh, sincere Bible-believing Christians are in both camps. But somebody is wrong, and obviously there's a difference of scriptural interpretation there as to what they really think that God would want. So I think it comes down to a Romans 14 issue. Who are we to judge or condemn the servant of another to his own master. He stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord will make him stand. And so we don't throw rocks at other people who see things different than we do. But it's our conviction that the best way to do church is the way it was originally set up by the apostles. And we feel like if anybody understood what church was all about, the apostles did, since they were handpicked and hand-taught by Jesus. And so, therefore, the way they set up churches as we see in the New Testament, is going to be completely consistent with that. And most churches today don't have much use for the way the early church did things. I say that because if you look at the way churches operate today, we, we haven't merely added to what the early church did, and, and I'm not opposed to adding. But in most cases, at the most important points, the modern church does the exact opposite. Hmm of what the early church did. And so we feel the wholesale departure from early church practice is we feel that's not God's best and that more blessing would come by following the New Testament ways than by diverging from them. So it's it's a little bit like having a a car with your front end out of alignment. It's still a car. It's still a (laughs) blessing to have, and it'll still get you from point A to point B. But obviously you're tearing up your tires. And so we feel like, the more that a church deviates from the New Testament example, the more the front end's getting out of alignment. And sure, there's still a church, and God will still bless them, and they, we don't have any reason to doubt their love for the Lord. It's just that we feel like, unwittingly, they're chewing up their tires. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> So, well, just as an example, then I love and I fellowship with Arminians and uh, dispensational premillennialists, even though I think that Calvinism and preterism, at least of the Orthodox persuasion, are, are true. And, and while I wouldn't call them essentials, I do think that they're important. And, and so, is that kind of like what your position is—something that you think is is not essential, but at the same time very important? Well, that's well said. I too hold to the doctrines of grace, and yet I have a great many pastor friends that are quite Arminian. And we respect each other and still have good fellowship. And the same, too, with my view of end-time events. I would hold to orthodox preterism. And yet, I, we, in our church, we don't say you have to believe that to come there. And we have 
enjoy hearing other perspectives on it, and and we just differ with it. So yeah, that's that's a good analogy. Okay. Now, both the book that you sent me and your website, Liken Church Practice to Wineskins, can you tell us about that? Well, Jesus said, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Mm. When he said that, he wasn't talking about church practice. He was His point simply was, there's some things you just don't do. There's some things that are just inappropriate. You don't go to the store and in America and try to buy things with Japanese yen. You don't let a 10-year-old drive a car. You don't wear a heavy coat in the summer. It's just some things you don't do. And so in the first century, it looks like, whereas today we make wine in glass bottles and with corks and tubes and stuff, it looks like they would put this new wine in, wineskins to, and as part of the fermenting process, as it gave off gases, uh, it looks like a new wineskin was elastic enough to accommodate the swelling of those gases. But if you use an old wineskin that had already swollen, I guess its elasticity was gone, it would rupture the wineskin, ruining that, and worse yet, all your wine would be lost. So we have likened that analogy to church practice, saying, you know, there's some ways to do church that are better than others. Mm. And, and, and so if you think about a, today we have all different kind of wine skins, like, if you look at those, uh, you could call a wine glass a wine skin. If you look at those wine connoisseurs and they pour the wine in their wine glasses and you know how they swirl it around and they smell <laughs> it and they hold it up to the light. And you look at the design of that wine glass. It's got a stem on it. There's a lot of thought goes into it. The stem is there so the heat from your hand doesn't heat the wine up. And it's a clear glass instead of colored so that you can see the clarity of the wine. And it's usually tulip-shaped to funnel the bouquet, the aroma, so that you can smell what's in the wine. And, um, and of course, by swirling it, they can see the legs coming down the sides of the glass and tell about its alcohol content. Well, those same guys, you know, they don't sit around. You could, They could pour that wine into uh, little plastic or paper <laughs> Dixie cups, huh. but they don't do it. Hmm. And, 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 and why not? Well, the wine hasn't changed, has it? But yet, clearly, if they put it in a plastic Super 8 motel cup, their enjoyment of the wine would be affected. And so we're not saying that people who don't do church the way we do don't have the wine of the new covenant. We're not saying they don't have the wine of the spirit. We're not saying that at all. But we are saying, just like Jesus did, that the container you put the wine of the spirit in, and we'll call that church practice, can affect your enjoyment of the wine. So it's it's a pragmatic argument in that sense. And and so we think there's some ways of doing church that are better than others. You can do super eight motel room cup wine or you can do <laughs> wine glass church and, and and that's that's the first thing i'd say but but the second thing i'd say about it you do see on monday morning in trash cans all over my neighborhood empty wine bottles and the reason the bottles are in the trash is not because there's anything wrong with the bottle it's because it's empty mm. and having said that it doesn't matter how you do church if you don't have the wine it's just academic and it belongs in the trash can and, and so the main thing is the wine, and everybody who loves Jesus, no matter what denomination they're in, really does have the wine. That, and that's what's central. But then the wine's got to go into something. And the, I think the temptation is for people who really have the wine, which is the greater, to think that they can dispense with the lesser, which is the container. And they think that to pay attention to how we do church is legalism. Hmm. 
and we would differ. I mean, it's certainly the wine is what's central, but it, Jesus said you got to put the wine in something. You got to pay attention to the wine skin. And so, the even though the bottle exists for the sake of the wine, a lot of engineering goes into wine bottles, or for that matter, wine glasses. And so we're saying similarly, thought, careful thought, needs to go into the way we do church. And we would argue again. The best wineskin is the way it is what we'll call apostolic tradition or, or new, the New Testament example. Hmm. And if we if we start monkeying with that, well, we might be shooting ourselves in the foot. And I think we ought to have a good reason if we don't do it the New Testament way. And that's been our challenge. And that's why we think it's important that we feel like God could best use us if we do church in the New Testament way. And, and we re- believe we could receive the greatest blessing. By doing the church in New Testament way. Okay. Well, we're going to be looking at New Testament patterns and, and apostolic tradition in a moment, but I have one last question for you first. While your organization's emphasis is on practice, uh, and although many might think the practices you advocate are strange and unfamiliar, would, do you think that my listeners would find the doctrines you advocate are orthodox and traditional? Is there anything doctrinally that we should be concerned about? Ah, that's a wise question, and it's good to check that out. <laughs> the answer is... We are quite orthodox in our doctrines. Uh, NTRF's favorite statement of faith is, for example, the First London Baptist Confession of 1646, which is recognized by everybody as a very orthodox, sound statement of faith. And for that matter, since I was involved with the Southern Baptists for so many years, there, there's nothing in the Southern Baptist faith and message that we would disagree with. So, yeah, we also advocate apostolic teaching poured into the wineskin of apostolic tradition. Mm. And, and so we mean by that the teachings of the New Testament are best uh, lived out in the, by the practices of the New Testament. So I, we think doctrine is very important, but there's no uh, skeletons in the closet at NTRF that you need to be concerned about. It's everything we believe doctrinally is very much consistent with the principles of the, the scriptures and the Reformation. Okay, good. Because I ask because uh, a couple of the groups that come to mind when I think about people who uh, advocate, uh, you know, s- s- some sort of reformation or restoration of, of what was in the New Testament, the oneness Pentecostals come to mind because they call themselves apostolic, and of course they believe that they deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, you know, certain extreme. Um, uh, Churches of Christ come to mind that meet in small buildings or that, you know, reject all creeds and stuff like that, and they believe that you aren't saved unless you're baptized. And so I just wanted to make sure that those kinds of, um, you know, what I would consider to be heresies would, would not be something that we would find as we look into your organization. No, nor should they be tolerated. One of the good things about house churches is that they are easy produ- to reproduce, and the bad things about house churches is that they are easy to reproduce. And so... <laughs> You you have that works. It's like the Roman roads. Uh, they could be used to spread the gospel, or they could use to be used to spread uh, Judaism. I mean, unbelieving Judaism, uh, Judaizers, and so so too with house churches. Uh, in the right hands, it could be a blessing to a lot of people, and you can start many new churches. But so can people with false doctrine, and 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 so that yeah. yeah. Um, we would say that you know Jesus said it was to our advantage that he go away. Because in his absence, he would send the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles, and by extension us, into all truth. And so when we looked at, when we look at the last 2,000 years of church history, that's not just a bunch of stuff that happened. That's the history of the Holy Spirit's work 
among his people. And so we see that over the last 2,000 years, the church has learned many lessons uh, in fighting heretics and, had, and has, I mean, you've got thousands of years of godly pastors and church leaders and teachers studying the scriptures, a lot of times in response to heretics. And so I think it's very important to get in line with the consensus of God's people around the world and throughout time, throughout history. And, you know, you look at these statements of faith uh, that various denominations have made, and they differ with each other at many points, but they also agree with each other at many points. And I think the places they differ with each other make the places they agree with each other all the more significant. And that constitutes, if you have a Venn diagram, you know, that's the places they overlap. That should get our attention when you've got Mm. this uncoerced, Holy Spirit-induced agreement. And you see those same basic doctrines in many of the ecumenical creeds, like, for instance, the Nicene Creed. Uh, There's certain things that have come to define essential Christianity, and you don't want to stand outside of that because that's where the wolves are. And we would say Mm. that most of the people who are against having creeds are against it because they believe something that goes against those creeds. <laughs> right. And so the, the back to the Bible mentality has got to be coupled with an onward with the spirit mentality. And you can't pretend the last 2000 years didn't happen. True. It, and, and so we would argue, as Martin Luther did, that you know, for the regular fee day, the, the rule of faith and, and to be, be in, in the stream of mainstream Christian thought, especially as it regards the certain basic doctrines of the faith and uh so yeah that, that's a very important thing and, and we would not want to stand outside of that in any way okay well well, let's dive right in then to to first talk about new testament patterns and traditions uh at, at the website ntrf describes itself as having a commitment to new testament patterns for church practice and it's somewhat ironic that i'm going to be questioning and challenging you today in light of what the website goes on to say which is this Concerned questions and the burden of explanation ought to fall on those who seek to deviate from apostolic tradition, not on those who wish to keep it. Now, I found this statement provocative, but at the same time, I have to admit it sounds pretty reasonable. Uh, <laughs> do, do you find that the burden of explanation, sometimes even defense, is often placed on the wrong shoulders? Yeah, the operative's word, words there are ought to. There, There is what it ought to be, and then there is reality. Mm. So right now, we are the ones on defensive. But we think it ought to be the other way around based on our study of Scripture. So, yeah, we spend most of the time defending what we're doing as if we've, you know, the beast from Revelation with all the horns and heads. <laughs> and um, it, what we advocate is so unfamiliar to a traditional mainstream Christian in the West that he's going to take what we say about as seriously as he does another piece of junk mail in the mailbox. That's just the fact of the matter. People are not familiar with how the early church did things, and they see what we do as strange and give it no credibility. So, yeah, we spend most of our time defending what we're doing, but we're just saying it looks to us like that ought to be the other way around, that the people that ought to do all the explaining are those who've decided that they know better than the apostles and how to do church, and they've decided they're going to change it. And, well... We're not saying there's never a place to change it. We're just saying, boy, you ought to have a real good reason for changing it, and that needs to be thought twice about. And if anybody gets quizzed, it ought to be the guy that has departed from the New Testament 
rather than us who are trying to keep it. Okay. And, and now one of the first questions that somebody's likely to ask is, aren't New Testament patterns for church practice just descriptions and not necessarily prescriptions? How, how, how do you respond to that question? That is exactly what is said. And the attitude is, well, if it's not positively commanded, it's not going to bind us. And, well, that's fair. I mean, I understand you don't want to be a monkey see, monkey do reader of the Bible. Uh, you could read in the Old Testament about Jephthah, who had that bright idea that if he'd have victory in battle, the first thing out of the door he would sacrifice. And I guess the first thing out of the door was his daughter. So a lot of times the Bible merely tells you what people did, not intending that you would copy that. They think, well, in the case of Jephthah, that you should know better than that. And there's a book that uh, Professors Fee and Stewart wrote called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It, we really like the book and agree with it. And, and they say about that subject, they say our assumption, now that's an interesting word, assumption, along with many others, and that's a majority opinion, is that unless Scripture expressly tells us we must do something, what is merely narrated, merely narrated or described can never function in a normative way. Mm. So they're saying what basically you asked me, and I see the logic of that, and actually I'm not hostile to that. Uh, yeah, okay, I see that. So the question is, is it possible the author of the scriptures intended what they described to function in a normative way, and, and that they flag that by some other method. And so we would argue that there are good reasons given in Scripture to indicate that the apostles intended what they told us to function normatively. And so, although I agree with the premise that you shouldn't be a monkey-see-monkey-do reader of the Bible, we believe there are basic principles and texts and attitudes in the Bible itself that would indicate that, yes, they did intend us to take these things as normative. What, what are some of those examples? Can you give us some examples of texts which would make that very point? Well, just logically, form follows function. And so whatever the apostles believed about the original function of the church is going to be reflected in the form that we see set up, unless they were somehow disconnected from reality, which they weren't. So... That's the first reason. It's just it, it, it's a you, you're not going to go wrong doing it the New Testament way, uh, but but then just uh, beyond the the form follows a function aspect of it, um, we 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 know we know that they had a definite way they did things. Like Paul wrote uh, to Titus, he said, "The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished." So. If, the, if it has to be straightened out and there was finished versus unfinished, they had certain basic things that they wanted to see done before they considered it finished. Hmm. It was not willy-nilly. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, now the rest I will set in order when I come. So again, there was a certain basic order. And the one of the early Southern Baptists who ever wrote anything was a guy named J.L. Dagg. And this is about 1859 he's writing this. Uh, he was a founding member of First Baptist Atlanta here in Georgia. And he said, the apostles have taught us by example how to organize and govern churches. He said, we have no right to reject their instruction and captiously insist that nothing but positive commands shall bind us. 
And then he said, instead of choosing to walk in a way of our own devising, we should take pleasure to walk in the footsteps of those holy men from whom we have received the word of life. And then Dag said, respect for the spirit by which they were led should induce us to prefer their modes of organization and government to such as our inferior wisdom might suggest. So there's a guy from Baptist history who's saying, look, it's they taught us by example, intending that we do it their way and respect for the Jesus and the spirit that inspired them to write the scriptures should induce us to do it their way instead of what he calls our inferior wisdom. So that's that. No, that's just logical. And I realize that. But also, when you look at the attitude that the apostles had, they actually would praise churches for doing things their way rather than some other way when they were pressured to depart from it. Now, one example of that, and I think it's an important example, is 1 Corinthians 11 and following. Chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 is totally about church practice. And there obviously had been some come in after Paul's departure who were trying to persuade the church to do things differently than Paul had set it up. And they resisted that, but they did write and ask Paul about it. And so he starts off by saying in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, well, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then he says in verse 2, I praise you. There's that praise I was talking about. Why? For remembering me as opposed to the contentious people in what? In everything. And for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. And then everything else he's got to say concerns church meetings. And he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, they celebrated as an actual meal. And then he talks about participatory church meetings and proper order in that. And so here I see related to church practice, and that's, of course, what we're talking about today. Hmm. When a church chose to do things Paul's way rather than some other way, he praised them for doing that. And I think it's interesting as well, the Greek word here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, is the Greek word for traditions, parodosis. And it fundamentally refers to a way of doing things, whereas a teaching, the Greek word didache, you know, we think of, well, something that's taught as precept or doctrine. And certainly they did follow his teachings. I don't have any beef with that. But what he's talking about here are not teachings. They're practices. Again, this word parodicist. And so that's why the ESV and the NAS put traditions there. And whereas in English, we, we you know, of course, we think of a tradition as a custom or way of doing things that's handed down. The translators picked that word for a reason because that captures the sense of the Greek word. It's an inherited pattern of thought or actions. It's, uh, Bauer and Gingrich says it, simply it's that which is handed down. So, and, and the context, clearly he's talking about a practice here. So, again, looking at attitudes, we see that um, they were praising churches for doing it their way. And if you notice that word traditions, again, in chapter 11, verse 2, it's in the plural. Hmm. 
not just this one tradition that he's about to talk about, which in that case was head coverings, but all of the traditions, plural, that he had handed down to them. He had in mind more than that, that one tradition. So, uh, so, you know, I see them, okay, I, if I could write a letter to Paul in the first century or the apostles in Jerusalem and say, look, we're, we're in, in the Western Hemisphere over here in America and we're doing church and we've decided to do it your way instead of the European way. Do you care? What, what would he have said? <laughs> well, based on this, he would have, pra- boy, I praise you mm. for doing it my way. Because I think whereas Jewish tradition went against the commandments of God and Jesus was very against the tradition of the elders, apostolic traditions are completely consistent with the commands of Jesus. Because, again, these guys were hand-picked, hand-trained, hand-sent out by Jesus. And Now, let me just throw a disclaimer in here, Chris. I'm, we're not advocating the supposed apostolic tradition that you see in church history that is claimed by Greek Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism. Sure, sure. We're talking about tradition as you see in the New Testament. And we use the word tradition because the Bible does. And I think sometimes maybe because of what Catholicism has done with their tradition, where maybe as evangelicals, maybe we're a little gun shy and afraid of tradition. But the traditions of the New Testament are nothing to be uh, afraid of. And I think we can leave the muddied waters of church history and drink it to pure spring water of inspired New Testament uh, writings. And uh, Fee and Stewart in their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, go ahead and, and they, they talk about the paradigm principle. And they say that Mosaic legislation was paradigmatic in nature. And what they meant by that was when you look at the laws of Moses, you know, there's only really about 600 of them. And that's really... <laughs> That, well, compared to the United States federal code, yeah, that's sure. nothing. Yeah. So, and and their point was it was case law. So if you read that Moses said, okay, if you got a wheat field, you got to leave the corners unharvested for the poor. Well, let's say a guy is growing uh, olives and he's got olive grove. Does that mean he can harvest every last olive? Well, no. He's got to leave the right. corners of. Uh, so that see you you see the law applied in one area. And you're applied in another. So we're going to argue, we would argue that adherence to apostolic traditions is, like with the law of Moses, is paradigmatic in nature. And if I see that the apostles were pleased when churches followed specific traditions, then I think I'm expected to apply that example to other patterns we see modeled by the apostles in the way they established churches. And, and in fact, Chris, going on, to, you know, why would you say they would care? Well, I know there are certain things, certain traditions for church practice that they expected were going to be universal. For example, verse 16 of this chapter 11, after he talks about head coverings, at the end of it, this is the fiesta de resistance. This is the, man, he's certain. If This is going to quiet the contentious people, what he's got to say. In verse 16, he says, that now if anyone wants to be contentious, and, and you know, there were people contending for something different. But anyone must be contentious about this. Here's what you need to realize. We have no other practice. Right. Nor do the churches of God. So he's making an appeal here to what all the churches are doing, which was the same thing. Certain that when the people who advocating something different realized that all the other churches were doing the same thing, that they would drop their contentions. See, now, today, 
church renewal people would argue every church should be unique and different and that the strength of the churches is like a chameleon, that it can change color with every background. Well, I don't see that here. Paul expected the uh, a universal practice done in all the churches was in and of itself reason enough not to depart from it if you thought you should do something different. Mm, okay. okay an- another example, uh, not to go into the application too deeply on it, but just by way of principle in chapter 14 where he's dealing with orderly worship. He's talking about you know, the role of the women. And he says, now look, as in all the congregations of the saints, this is verse 33, women should remain silent in the churches. Now, I don't want to hear get into the application of that. <laughs> other, well, I mean, that's important and it should be dealt sure. with. But, but my principle is, look at his argument. Whatever he wants them to do or to stop doing or to start doing, whatever it is, his part of his appeal is what all the congregations of the saints were doing. So I'm just, I'm just saying that it's obvious there were some things that all the churches were expected to do alike regarding practice. And uh, Jim Elliott, the martyr missionary, he, he picked up on that. And before he was killed, by those Indians, he wrote, he said, the pivot point, and, and, and this is why you're asking me this, I know, he says, the pivot point hangs on whether or not God has revealed a universal pattern for the church in the New Testament. See, the universal pattern. He said, if God has not, then anything will do so long as it works. And, and that, frankly, is the modern approach. Yeah. But Jim said, I am convinced that nothing so dear to the heart of Christ is his bride should be left without explicit instructions as to her corporate conduct. I am further convinced that the 20th century has in no way simulated this pattern in its method of churching a community. It is incumbent upon me, if God has a pattern for the church, to find and establish that pattern at all costs. So we're saying the same thing Jim Elliott did. You know, it looks to us like there is a pattern here, and that God wants us to follow that. And so one of the, I guess the strongest passages would be in 2 Thessalonians 2. Here it actually is commanded that we hold to the traditions of the apostles. In and verse 15. So, yeah, have you got that in front of you? You yeah. want to read that for us? Yeah, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, that word traditions, again, is parodesis. It's not the fundamental word for teaching. Now, you can tradition a teaching to a group just like you tradition a way of doing things. And so I understand that word can mean teachings, but that's not fundamentally what it means. Prior to this, in this letter, he had been talking about end-time events and the rise of the man of lawlessness and, I guess, people being misapplying that and perhaps they become idle. They were so sure that the second coming or the judgment coming of Jerusalem was upon them that they'd quit working. And that wasn't the right application. And and maybe even people were teaching different theology of end-time events. So Paul, in verse 15, he says this, Hold to the traditions that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Of course, we still have their letters. So you could make the argument that by traditions here, he means their traditions of end-time events. But similarly, and, and I'm not opposed to that, I understand that, but similarly he goes on and uses this same word, traditions, 
in chapter 3 about the people who had become idle. They were so certain the Lord's coming was any minute that they'd quit their jobs. And he says in verse 6, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the tradition you receive from us. And then he talks about their tradition of working and not being lazy. Mm-hmm. And so that's not, I mean, that's a practice, isn't it? Yeah. So when you when you go back to chapter 2, verse 15, if you notice that word traditions, again, is in the plural. And so we would argue it refers to all of his traditions. His traditions about in-time events, his traditions about working for a living, and by extension, his traditions about church practice, as we've already seen, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, 12. 13 and 14. And so going back to Fee and Stewart's book, they revised what they wrote, that quote I, I read earlier in the second edition. They revised it. And they added these words. He says uh, about, he says, unless Scripture explicitly tells us we must do something, what is only narrated or described does not function in a normative way. And then they put a, a hyphen and they added, unless it can be demonstrated <laughs> on other grounds that the author intended it to function in this way. Mm. And so we have tried in our conferences and our writings to demonstrate on other grounds that the authors of the New Testament intended what they wrote to function normatively. That the book of Acts is, in fact, a handbook for church planters. This is a way... You're supposed to do it. That's the way it's supposed to look like when you're finished. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like the, th- the kind of three basic arguments that you've made are, are besides just a logical argument, is that the, the, the uh, New Testament authors spoke of the universality of church practice. They talked about uh, – they commended or praised uh, people for doing things the way that they had handed down to them. And then there were at least a couple of cases you point us to where the New Testament author commands somebody to follow a tradition. But let's say that even despite all of that, we still weren't convinced. Um, you point out in some of your literature that, that churches are um, – uh, sort of picking and choosing from New Testament patterns. I mean, it's not as if it's it's not as if they're ignoring patterns altogether. There's a, there's a consistency issue. Is that right? Oh well, that's right. As a Baptist, we made a big deal out of the fact that the New Testament pattern is to only baptize believers. The Presbyterians, of course, baptize babies, and the Baptists say, "Well, there's there's no example of that in the Bible." And I saw a tract one time. The Baptist put out it said what the Bible says about infant baptism, and you open it up and it's just blank on the inside. <laughs> so, I'm when I mean, I'm not against. It. I say, well, yeah, that's right. It's the New Testament pattern to baptize believers. But my question is, well, what about all the other patterns? If we're going to start going by patterns as normative, what about all the other patterns in the Bible that that we don't do? Mm. And so, yeah. So what we do is we pick and choose. For instance, churches today almost all meet on Sunday. Well, that's never commanded in the Bible, but it is clearly a New Testament pattern that they assembled, not on the Sabbath, the seventh day, but on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, the day he rose from the grave. Well, that's a New Testament pattern. It's been consistent throughout the last 2,000 years of history. Most churches still do that. Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) And they would say, well, you don't have to do it. And I would say... 
well, let's be consistent. And I, so I don't really, my our belief is God didn't intend us to be, go cafeteria style through the New Testament, picking this, leaving that, picking this, leaving that. I would stand with J.L. Dagg and say, you know, that's our inferior wisdom. It's better to show respect for the authors of Scripture and the Spirit to do it their way. So, again, I'm, I wouldn't say you can never deviate from the New Testament. I would just say you ought to have a really good reason for doing it. It's sort of like, to me, the Sabbath command that God gave the Israelis at Sinai. You know, they said, okay, well, here's the Saturday Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And you can't work on Saturday. In fact, we believe it's so strong. If you work on Saturday, you're going to be stoned to death. So that's a law. But then it was also allowed that if your ox fell in the ditch, mm-hmm. you could work on the Saturday and get the ox out. And Jesus said it's always right to do good on the Sabbath. And so we see there are exceptions to keeping the Sabbath, even if you're a Jewish person under the Old Covenant. So I would apply the same thing to apostolic traditions. It's It looks to me like we're commanded to follow their traditions. But at the same time, I'd have to say, well, yeah, sometimes you can. Sometimes you could make a really compelling case for deviating from a New Testament pattern. And I will have no problem with that. But that's not the attitude that Christians have today. It's, it, it's, it's very willy-nilly, and it's you pick it. You take it, you leave it. And you, and, and, and that's, that's, so we're arguing for consistency. That's exactly right. We feel like that's where the greatest blessing lies. And that's where you're least likely to get into some of the problems we've created today that I think might not be problems if we did church in a New Testament way. Okay, and I'm sure we're going to get into that uh, a little bit later in this interview and perhaps in the future as well. But but before we move on to a specific pattern, um, one concern that I have is at what point would, would we be taking this too far? Uh, if we scoured the New Testament, we'd find all sorts of patterns and practices that probably many of us wouldn't even think of adopting today. Uh, you know, the second chapter of Acts says believers were selling all their possessions and were meeting and eating together every day, apparently. Um, something even more, uh, something that stands out even more to me is that every time Paul and other apostles Apostles evangelized new cities. They always went to synagogues first, even after Acts 13, you know, where Paul infamously says they were turning to the Gentiles. So if your organization doesn't encourage believers to sell everything that they have and to make witnessing to Jews a high evangelistic priority over anybody else, why not? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, in debate, you can push an argument to a ridiculous extreme. And then discredit the whole thing and create so much smoke nobody really sees the fire. And sometimes that's done by people. Not, I'm not suggesting you're doing that. Sure. And I, I wish we did have that problem in the church as a whole. That would be a better problem, I think, than the one we've got now. People being over-scrupulous about obeying Scripture. But, yes, that's a concern. We would say, Chris, that a one-time example of something is not a pattern. Uh, let's take the communalism of Jerusalem that you mentioned they did do that. We would argue that that was a unique response to a unique situation that any church has the freedom to do and has since the New Testament times, but that it's not a pattern because you don't see any evidence that church in Rome or Ephesus or Corinth did any such thing. Hmm. What made that unique in that sense was you've got pilgrims from around the, the Roman world coming to Jerusalem for the Passover 
bunch of them get saved at Pentecost. Okay, now what? Every Christian in the world was in Jerusalem. You leave and go back to Alexandria. There's no church there. There's nobody to teach you about the Messiah there. You're alone. So it looks like these pilgrims stayed longer than they would have normally. And the church responded to that need to suddenly teach large numbers of new converts all at once by this communalism where people voluntarily shared things in common. Mm. And, you know, and there are Christians who say that that's exactly what we should do today. But we personally haven't been convinced from Scripture that that's a pattern so much as it is an option for any Christian that should be considered in unique times. And we probably don't give sacrificially enough, as a matter of fact. But we just don't see that particular thing as a pattern. Hmm. So that's one of the differences we would argue. What we look at, Chris, is when you look at scholars in every denomination, no matter what they are, Roman Catholic or Charismatic or Methodist or anything, there's certain basic practices of the early church that are non-controversial as to their practice. That, that, that This is what they did. Well, that's not one of them. It's, so we would center on the things and that the scholars without a dog in the fight all agree on. Because, I mean, all these scholars go to churches that don't do any of the things <laughs> that they say the New Testament did. Well, those are the things. And, and the basics are they met in small enough groups that they can meet in people's homes, so they're smaller instead of larger. They had the Lord's Supper every week. When, of course, a lot of churches still do that, but they did it as a full meal. It was a true supper. Right. Their church meetings were participatory. It wasn't a worship service in the movie. You actually could verbally and meaningfully contribute to what was said and done in that meeting. So, And then... Fourth, they, their church government was, generally speaking, decentralized. It wasn't a pyramid like you see in the Anglican Church or the Catholic Church. It didn't have a bishop over the city. It was what, what I'll call congregational rule. And um, so, you know, those are the basics that are uncontroversial. And so I, I think if you – I would argue that if you stick with the basics that the scholars of all the churches agree on, then, okay – that's what's normative. And if you if you start making a big deal out of things that aren't widely agreed on, well, there's a good chance you are getting off into legalism and making too much out of something. Okay. Well, that was part one of my interview with Steve Atkerson. And uh, in part two, we discussed two specific patterns, uh, that of house churches and participatory church meetings. So I'll publish that episode tomorrow, and I hope you'll join me for that. Until then. Until then.